welcome to the Cycling in Alignment podcast, an examination of cycling as a practice and dialogue about the integration of sport and right relationship to your life. Hey there, Cycling in Alignment listeners. You're back for another solo episode. That's a solo-sode. I'm not saying I'm Han Solo or anything, but I am saying that I'm the only person talking on this podcast. And it's a walking pod. Hopefully the sound is pretty good. My sound ninja, Joel, is going to do his magic and his sorcery and make it sound even better. But it's a pretty quiet night out in my neighborhood. You might hear some crickets. It's October. So they're there, but they're not nearly as vocal as they have been for previous episodes. For today's chat... With all the Gemini in my head, we're going to talk about intervals, and specifically five-minute intervals. I don't really care to do too many of these pods that are on this kind of really traditional bike dorky stuff. There are plenty of people out there doing a great job at that. You know me, I like to get more long format and philosophical. But today's episode, we got to cover some fundamentals. Don't worry, though. I'll find a way to work some philosophy in there. You know I always do. Some deep thought. Why do we care about five-minute intervals? What's the deal? Well, back in the day, when I used to run uphill both ways in the snow with no shoes, back in 1994, when Jonathan Bowers and I bought our power meters from the crazy German Ulrich Schoberger, we ordered them from Europe, and they came on the slow boat. And then Jonathan hired Audrey Van Diemen, a Dutchman, to coach us. Audrey taught us that five intervals were an important part of any training program. And he explained to us that five-minute efforts were tiny blocks of duration in a race that usually led to a peloton explosion. That is to say that it was useful to train over a five-minute duration and make lots of power for that amount of time because in races, it was pretty common for inseparable gaps to occur over five-minute periods. That meaning specifically that when the race was on for five minutes consistently, it would blow apart into pieces. And those gaps tended to be irreparable unless there was a really big slowdown, you know? If the pace was super hot for 10 minutes and then people decided to go butt slow, then, of course, things could be welded back together. But the peloton tended to split or be cleaved in about five-minute chunks. And that even happens all the way towards the line, the end of a race. You know, there's a small group and they go hard for about five minutes. And then typically the people get dumped or there's a critical separation and then the winner emerges from that separation. This was an observation that Adrian made when he watched races and presumably held his stopwatch. And so he did lots of five-minute intervals. And I think there's some logic to this that's pretty simple we can see without looking, without doing a lot of post-mortem on race files and doing a lot of analysis. You can just see that this is a physiological barrier that is, for most people, riding maximum pace for about five minutes will get them to VO2 max and then they'll hold it. You'll get to VO2 in about three minutes, probably for most people. 
And then you can hold it for another two and then things get really challenging. So five minutes is a nice tidy sort of bookend effort or length of effort where you can go and hold your VO2 max for that long and then you're kind of done. And for a lot of people, the pace has to slow down at that point. Not for everyone. There are a few mutants out there who can ride at VO2 for for a VO2 max for eight minutes or even 10 or 12 minutes. They're very rare, but they happen. For most people, about five minutes is sort of the, the detonation point where your pace either slows down or something else happens, like you throw up or fall off your bike. So it's a natural physiological sort of plateau or I don't know what the word I'm looking for is. It'll come to me later. And this is significant because, of course, if you want to make a lot of power for that duration to be able to survive that selection in a race, then you got to train it in training. Also, five minutes are useful. Five minute efforts are useful in training because one of the most fundamental methods in training for an event is to take that event and cleave it into smaller pieces and replicate the smaller pieces in training and then string them together on race day or before race day. Example, you have a 20 kilometer time trial, which used to be more of a common distance in the US. We used to have more time trials in the US, I would argue, at least in Colorado anyway. And so you might break that 20K time trial into four 5K efforts, which would for most people be a little more than five minutes, but it's the same basic principle. And so when we cleave a longer effort into five minute chunks, then we can accomplish those at a slightly higher pace, thus intensively training our ability to complete our long duration event, as opposed to extensively where you're holding the same power you can already make, but trying to make it for longer increments. And ultimately it's good to train both ways. I recently heard Dr. Steven Seiler on a podcast on uh, Fast Talk Labs, and he described it in a very simple and brilliant way. He was talking about how a staircase has both rise and run rise being the height of the steps and run being the length of the steps. And we don't think about that probably very often because most staircases have a pretty normalized rise and run. If you live in a home that was built sometime in the last 30 years, it likely has standard stairs, except maybe to the attic where it's more likely that the rise is higher than the run. And then the stairs get really awkward. Or if you've ever tried to run on a staircase with long run and not a very high rise, the pacing can be very, very awkward. Sometimes you trip or fall if you're not paying attention. So thinking about intervals in that way, you could either focus on the rise of the run. That's what I'm getting at without going into any more star staircase architecture. Let's talk about five minute interval pacing. The discussion around pacing for a five minute interval applies to both longer intervals and five minute intervals. And this is where power comes in. And it's such a useful metric to help us pace our efforts. But in order to describe some of the nuance of pacing a five-minute interval, I'm going to talk about a track event, the four-kilometer pursuit. It's the perfect illustrator for what happens to most people when they go out and do a five-minute interval. <clears throat> so when you do a 4K on the track, if it's a 200-meter, 250-meter velodrome, that'd be 16 laps or four laps to a kilometer. And the objective for a good trackie is to start the pursuit or the four kilometer pursuit from a dead stop, get up to speed. We'll say for the sake of 
discussion at the moment as fast as possible, and then hold even splits from there to the end. So the first lap, you'll have a longer split since, of course, you had to start from a dead stop. And of course, you're starting, you've only got one gear on a track bike, so that means your start is pretty slow. It takes you four or five strokes to even get into a reasonable cadence range, and you're producing a lot of torque, and that front loads the effort. So then that's lap one, and then laps two through 16 would be at flying pace, we would say. And those we would ideally want to be very even split. That would be a conventional strategy. Some strategy. Some athletes would try for something a little different and they might start off a bit more conservative in the first kilometer or the first 2K. And then they would get faster towards the end. This is called a negative split. And depending on the type of athlete you are and how you're getting your head wrapped around the pursuit mentally, that might be the best strategy for you. But what very commonly happens, so I got a little wind here. Hopefully this isn't too noisy in my microphone. What commonly happens in the pursuit is we get a situation where people start off, they do their first lap, their standing lap, and then they get up to speed and they feel like rock stars. And they go way too fast on the second lap. And then still significantly too fast on the third lap. And then around lap four, reality starts to settle in. Now, how do they know how fast they're going? Well, every track cyclist has a coach who's standing dutifully on the apron calling out splits using a stopwatch. And they're giving you these splits to the tenth of a second. So if you do a 16.0 second lap, the coach will call out six zero, which would be a pretty fast lap on a 250 for most people. So that's fine. You and your coach sit down and discuss a schedule or uh, a projected lap split based on the overall time you want to ride and think is realistic, but we'll stretch your envelope a bit. And the first time pretty much every rider ever does a 4K, they make the same mistake. They start, get up to speed. You're usually up to a pretty good speed by about the time you reach the end of the back straight or about three quarters of a lap in. Then you get into your arrow bars, go through the third and fourth turns, and then come around and hear your first lap split. Now, that split's delayed because, of course, you had a standing start. So you have a penalty of about five or six seconds, depending on the track and some other factors. And then you come around for your second lap, and that's your first flying lap split. And that can be compared directly to your schedule. And every rider who does a 4K for the first time, pretty much without exception, will go way too fast. And the question is, why? And in order to understand the answer, we have to dive into our three critical metrics that we are always using in our heads and on our head units to understand what's going on. And those three metrics are power, heart rate, and perceived exertion. And as a reminder, power is your output. It's the, the rider's output at any given moment. Heart rate is the body's response to load. And perceived exertion is your own internal sense of strain. It's your internal sense of workload. <laughs> so these three metrics are sort of used to triangulate off of each other. They're like sounding boards. And they help us understand what's going on. Power is immediate because when you make power, you see an immediate 
that's an output. So the power meter registers the power and within a second you see the work you've produced, right? Heart rate and perceived exertion are in a different category because they are time delayed. Both heart rate and perceived exertion are time delayed from the moment the effort begins. And there, that delay can be significant. It can be about, it can be 30, 45, 60 seconds in length, depending on the effort you're doing and the context of how you, how you were going when you started it. If you start an effort from a really, really low output and your heart rate's quite low, then it's possible that it might take up to a minute for you to register that effort. If you go straight to, we'll say a pace that would get you to VO2 in three minutes. That was a car that went by, but it was an electric car. So it wasn't even that noisy. So what's important to understand is how the time delay impacts your perceived exertion and heart rate during an effort, either on the track or in a five minute effort, a five minute maximal effort. And this is how people screw up the pacing. And what's the problem with screwing up the pacing? Well, there's a really old saying that floats around the the infield of all velodromes worldwide. And that saying is one second too fast at the beginning, at the start costs you three at the end or at the finish. So what they're saying is if your first lap is a second too fast, you will explode and that will cost you three seconds at the finish. So let's finish our hypothetical first time four kilometer riders pursuit adventure. This rider starts off. Maybe they've agreed on a certain lap time with their coach for the first lap and they nail that and then they get excited because they don't feel anything yet because of the time delay. They haven't really registered the perceived exertion of their effort, but they're putting out a lot of power. And because they're on the track, they don't have a power meter they can look at. In competition, you're not allowed to actually look at a display on the track. I don't know if everyone knows that, but that's the rule. It's like a UCI thing or whatever. So even in the, even in training, you could have a display on your, on your handlebars, but things happen pretty quick on the track. So it's pretty hard to look at the data and really see much about what's going on. And there's some other complexities to that too, involving the difference between power in the straights and the turns that I won't get into in this pod. So our rider starts off and they nail their first lap and then they're flying on the second lap. And let's say that they're eight tenths under their schedule, which may not sound like much eight tenths of a second, but on a 250 indoor track, if you have more than about a second and a half between your fastest lap of your entire 4k and your slowest lap, that's pretty much considered a disastrous pursuit. That means you fell way off the cliff at the end. So let's pretend they're eight tenths ahead of a schedule on the second lap. And then it'd be something like five tenths on the next lap and then three tenths ahead on the third lap. And then for the middle, the next kilometer, they're around their schedule. They're kind of holding on They're They're at par, we might say, based on our predicted schedule. And that leaves them with about 2K to go. And since they started off too fast, the time delay, the wave of fatigue is going to hit them. The wave of metabolic load. That's how I like to think of this time delay. It's like a wave that you started way out in the ocean and then you're waiting for it to hit the shore. It takes time to get there. But when it gets there, it's really big and you've got to deal with the impact. It's kind of like a little tsunami. And this is the essence of the time delay. Now, what are the specifics of this time delayed 
perceived exertion. I mean, for one, your heart rate starts off pretty low, especially during a pursuit. You've done about 10 minutes of nothing before the start because you have to go over and wait by the line while whoever's going before you, sorry, there was another car, while whoever is riding before you is doing their pursuit or whatever. And then you've got to wait till they exit the track and the official calls you up and then you bring your bike up and the official grabs your bike or you put it in the gate. And then you climb around to the top side of the track and get on your bike and then get in your clipless pedals and make sure everything's all secure and your crank's in the right place and the guy's holding you correctly. And the official gives you the nod and then they count you down. So you've done a lot of nothing since then. In theory, your lactate level should be pretty low and your heart rate should be pretty low, although you might be a bit nervous. So maybe it's a little inflated from that. But basically you're, you're at some sort of resting state. And then you have to start and immediately drive this huge gear from a dead stop. So this front loads the effort automatically, inherently. So this is why Pursuit's the perfect example, because it actually is worse than when you would start a five-minute effort. If you were riding along at 30 kilometers an hour, and then you decided to start a five-minute effort, you wouldn't have as big of an acceleration load or torque load at the beginning of the effort. You could just start going and keep your power in a much narrower band. It's really not possible in the Pursuit. So we're sort of setting our athlete up for failure here in a way. So that's why it's extra important to understand this relationship between heart rate, power, and torque as, uh, sorry, I misspoke, heart rate, power, and perceived exertion as a track rider. But it, it also helps us understand how to do a five-minute interval on the road. So our athlete starts off and the wave of fatigue that comes after about lap four or five is a wave that's that brings upon brings about specific sensations and those sensations are a uh, a feeling of pressure in the lungs and i say pressure because it doesn't necessarily have to be good or bad on a good day you can feel a lot of pressure in your lungs a lot of um impetus to breathe a lot of need to breathe very heavily but it doesn't necessarily register as a bad thing right it doesn't mean it doesn't have to be painful, but frequently it is painful. And when you're really going hard, you almost have the sensation that you've got blood in your lungs. A lot of athletes will, will talk about that blood in the lungs, especially after they do a pursuit. And then there's a thing called pursuiter's hack where people are kind of coughing for the rest of the day because their lungs are pretty much spasming from the deep, deep effort they've done from the lung tissue, basically scavenging, scavenging as much O2 as it possibly can and also releasing as much carbon dioxide, CO2 as possible. That's a, a big ask for our lungs. So that's one thing. And then the other aspect is the legs. The legs will feel pressure. You'll feel the sensation of your muscles contracting, the force of your muscles. And on the track, it's even tricky to feel that because your cadence is so high. You know, when someone does a pursuit, we're talking, depending on the gear they're using and what track they're on, the gear, the cadence they're at once they're at speed is usually at least 100 RPM, but probably more typically greater than 110, between 110 and 120 RPM, because you're splitting the difference between a gear you can get off the line in a reasonable fashion and then a gear you can use for the rest of the effort. And so when you're pedaling that quickly, it's harder to feel the sensation of the muscles having that contractile tension. You know, if you're riding up a steep climb at 60 RPM, we're all familiar with that sense of force we have. 
you feel it's almost like the pedals pushing back on your foot in a way. And you feel the muscles, just the fibers firing and having that tension to push down. Right. But on the track, that's a little harder to feel. And on a flat road, that's harder to feel. And that's why some riders have a hard time making more power by pedaling faster. So that's a side note, but that effort also doesn't have to be good or bad necessarily. It's commonly a challenging sensation, right? It's, it's quite common for someone to feel lactic acid. We might say in the muscles, although that's a dated term, we'll say a sensation of burning, right? And that burning can be quite unpleasant when you go really hard, but it doesn't have to be that way. When you're having a no chain day, you don't really, you have the sensation of pressure, but no pain, right? Or when you've got a good, really good form or you're just having a rocking day. So those are the sensations, the legs and the lungs that build and build and build. And it doesn't sound like much when I say it on a podcast, but of course we all know that when you go really hard, those sensations can be quite overwhelming. So that's an important point. Let's talk about how those sensations steer our experience. So now we're going to walk through a hypothetical five-minute interval uh, in one-minute chunks. But I got ahead of myself because I forgot to finish our pursuit. So in the last kilometer of this ride, our athlete splits might now go the opposite direction. They might be at three-tenths, five-tenths, eight-tenths, uh, one second and three tenths over their baseline or their projected pace. And this is how you detonate time at the end of a pursuit. Your power goes down, your average speed goes down, your perceived exertion is through the roof. The last four laps, you're at a 10, but you can't go any faster. You're just nuclear. And that's the, uh, the rider dealing with the wave of lactate, the wave of the metabolic load of going too fast too soon in their effort. And so the important part to remind, to keep in mind here is perceived exertion and power are not parallel. They do not track with each other. They are not coupled. They're completely disassociated, especially when you're looking at the first minute and the last minute of the effort. And that is the most fundamental lesson you can learn from a power meter. And in case you've gotten to this point in the podcast, you're wondering why the hell is he talking about five minute efforts? I don't care. I'm never doing those. The same the same rule of pacing or the same relationship of power to heart rate applies for all efforts. It doesn't matter if we're talking about a six hour race or even a six hour ride. Fundamentally, you'll have a decoupling of power and heart rate over that long ride. And you'll also have a decoupling of power and perceived exertion, same problem. And it happens over a 30 minute effort or even a 30 second effort. It can happen to a degree, right? And the rule of pacing applies to all efforts. Any effort over about 12 seconds, that rule of pacing applies. Because if you start even an effort as short as one minute with the idea of having the same pacing you would in a maximal 12-second sprint, you're going to have a really rough time in the last 20 seconds of that one-minute effort, right? So just to make sure I explain that clearly, if you go out and intend to maximize your power for a one minute effort, make the most power you possibly can. And you go out like you're doing a 12 second sprint only. And then you just try to go hold that same power or that same output. We'll say for the entire one minute, you're going to go down in a ball of flames and you won't make the most power you could for that one minute. Although, well, actually 
your power might be quite high, but your pace will suck because in the last 20 seconds, you're going to be making such little power that your speed's really going to fall off. So if you're racing someone, you would more than likely get beat. Uh, assuming your opponent had a superior or more even pacing strategy. Good. So now let's break down this five-minute interval minute by minute. And it's parallel to our pursuiter example. But there are a few small differences that are important to point out. In the first minute, when you start your five-minute interval, let's assume that you're on a road, a flat road, whatever. And I'll talk about the parameters for, the, for this road selection, route selection for these types of intervals in a moment. Let's say you're riding at 30K an hour and then you shift up a couple gears and you start going and you press your lap button at the beginning of your lap. Okay, great. Now you're going and you're not feeling anything. And maybe you think, you hypothesize that you might be able to make 320 watts for this five minute effort. But it's gonna take a full minute again for those sensations of leg pressure and lung pressure, good or bad, to appear. And until they do, you might really be thinking optimistically. It's kind of like riding in a tailwind. When you're thinking, wow, I'm really crushing it today. And then you turn around, you realize you had a tailwind the whole day. That's kind of what's happening in the first minute of a five minute effort. So experience will teach you that you really have to be conservative in that first minute. And how I like to phrase it is for the first minute, it's safe to kind of think about your effort just in terms of RPE especially if you don't have a power meter. And the RPE that I like to use for the first minute is about a seven, about 70% effort. And that's making a lot of assumptions about you as an athlete, about how fresh you are, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, which we won't get into. So that's not a, that's not a textbook or ironclad guideline. And, you know, we could go back and forth on exactly what 70% of your own internal RPE means all day anyway. So just take it as a concept. And if you have a power meter, then of course you can use historical five minute power references to kind of give yourself a target, but they're both pros and cons to this method. And I'll briefly dissect those, but let's continue on our hypothetical journey. So now we're at the end of the first minute and we've got this sensations are starting to come up. The breath has become more labored. Your respiration rate has increased, right? You're no longer breathing at eight or 10 breaths per minute. Now you're breathing at a much higher rate and it's building and you're watching a heart rate come up on your head unit and you're watching your power and it's bouncing around a little bit as it usually does. And that's all good. And then you get to the end of the second minute. And now by this point, things are getting pretty loud, meaning your lungs are really talking to you. Your body has raised the volume of what's happening in your legs and your lungs. The volume's gone up to about a nine at this point. In the first minute, the volume of these communication pathways may have been much lower. First minute, it might've been a four or a five out of 10, right? You can feel there's something there, but it's really not too much of a big deal. It's not too much of a complaint, but now we're already getting up there. We're, we're starting to climb up to about an eight or nine by the end of the second minute. <clears throat> and by two and a half minutes in halfway, you're at a solid, a solid nine for sure. And you're thinking, Hmm, this is a lot of, this is a lot of noise going on. And I'd like to characterize it as noise because it's really your body talking to you. Your body's communicating to you. It's letting you know that you are putting it through duress by trying to ride your bike this fast. And 
that's good because information is good. And some of these sensations can be quite challenging to deal with. And the louder the volume gets, the more of your attention they command. And there's something quite elegant and simple about that equation. So as we go through the last few minutes, I'll kind of unpack that too. By the time you get to three minutes into your effort, so two minutes to go, you're maybe at a 9.5. Things have, have started to really ratchet their way up towards maximum. And you're getting to the point where your world is starting to get small, meaning both metaphorically and actually, you may only be able to see, uh, you lose your peripheral vision a bit because you're really focused on things. So you're starting to not notice things like traffic or wind on your skin. Your, the number of things you can focus on has become smaller. And so that's actually visually happening with loss of some peripheral cues. So this is, where you, this is why we have to be careful about our road selection because when you go really hard, you can't see all those things. But also inside your mind movies, your head story, things are becoming smaller. Your focus is becoming narrower because your body's talking to you so much that you kind of can't think about much else. And this is where cycling starts to get really beautiful. Here's my philosophical wormhole. You know, we go through life and we're doing all these things all the time. And our tension is usually somewhat divided. I mean, right now I'm walking and talking to you on a podcast. And I'm also trying to think about my notes and all the bits and pieces that I wanted to make sure I didn't forget. And so I'm doing at least three things, plus the breathing and the digestion of the dinner and whatever else I've got going on. Plus, I'm checking out the moon because the moon is almost full and it's quite spectacular at the moment. So there aren't that many moments in life where our attention isn't divided. If you're a practiced meditator, then you've got that in your pocket. But the bike brings us to a place of singular attention. It narrows our universe and it does that through effort. The harder you go or the more smashed you are, if you go long, 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 I mean like Lachlan Morton long, then you'll get to the same point, right? We can get there either through intensity or duration. I mean, I'm sure most of you have read his interview about how he did that race in Spain and all the rocks look like suitcases at the end. And after that was after 48 hours of racing or whatever. So we can hit the same endpoint with different means, but there's something worth examining in that moment, I think, because I think a lot of us go a little bit crazy at times from how much our world throws at us and how our attention is always divided, whether it's through our own doing or our own mismanagement of our thoughts or whether it's through the environment we live in. Probably some of it is intrinsic and some of it is extrinsic. And so I think we seek that quiet, that solitude, that peaceful opportunity to have a singular focus and let everything else go. And I'll say that the bike can offer that to people at times. And that's beautiful. But I'll also caution people and say that if you're using the bike to drown out the noise of your other things and go super hard and make your eyeballs bleed, that's not going to solve your problems or rarely will it solve your problems. It's really more of a bypass, to be honest, because you're just burying the things with pain. And yes, it's meditative in the sense that you're singularly focused, but it's not even something... In order to be meditative, I would argue that it's got to be consciously brought about by an act of will. And yeah, you're going hard on the bike through an act of will, but not with the intent of meditation. What you're doing is 
you're going hard on the bike to go hard on the bike. And then the meditative aspect is sort of a side effect. It's an almost an accidental side effect in order to be meditative. You have to have the specific intent to be meditative. I'll say it that way. And I'm not an expert on the definition of what makes something meditative. This is just my instinct on it after studying the parts that I've studied and learning the bits that I've learned and doing the meditative bits that I've done and the bike riding bits I've done. So for whatever that's worth. But when we meditate, we are singularly focused on that action with a specific purpose. When we ride our bikes and we bludgeon ourselves with pain and lactate, and then we come home and all the taxes and bills and dirty dishes and complaining spouses and noisy kids or broken dishwashers or whatever we've got going on that we don't really want to deal with, all the volume gets pumped down on that a bit just because you're swimming in a bath of neurotransmitters. There's a little bit of a bypass going on there potentially for some people. I'm not saying that's you. I'm not saying everybody does that, but it happens for sure. Um, and then there's this sort of badge of honor fight club kind of thing. Like, Oh, I went and rode my bike a hundred miles today. So nothing else matters. And that's great. You know, riding your bike a hundred miles is an accomplishment. I haven't done it in a while, actually, now that I think about it, which is kind of a bummer, but sometimes things, people get busy. So it is what it is. So when the world becomes small and it affords us that opportunity to be singularly focused because the volume of discomfort in our minds goes up so high. I think that is simultaneously a moment that's beautiful because it allows us to be in that single mind, that one mind, but also it's not necessarily something that we should always be, we'll say, reliant on as our sole method of escape. Because if you're using it as an escape, there are multiple problems with that. One is, that it's like, as soon as you can't go ride your bike because of any number of reasons, then you're screwed if you're dependent on it. And there's an old saying, two is one and one is none. Meaning if you don't have a backup, then you're screwed. If you really want to have a spiritual practice that enables you to claim or uh, refine the single mind, then it ought to be something that isn't dependent on a mechanical device like a bicycle. It ought to be something you could practice adjust with your mind. That's my two cents on that. And then I'll also say, though, that what's beautiful about that practice when you are in that place where the world gets small and you can no longer think about taxes or the future tomorrow or the mistakes you made in the past and your tunnel vision becomes tinier and tinier then that's teaching us something. It's giving us a gift. It's the bike giving us a gift and teaching us how focused we can be. The, the practice is to do it at will, not only during a hard effort. And if you really want to go deep into that wormhole or that tunnel, try an hour record because then you get to do it for the last 15 or 20 minutes. I've done a few of those. And what I love about that practice is that it just illustrates a truth about the bike. There's this beautiful truth about cycling because when we go that deep and when our, our brains talk to us that loudly, we're in a highly primitive and sympathetic state of mind. And the reptile brain is driving the bus, so to speak. And when that happens, 
the true personality, the core personality of the person tends to come out. This is why when you watch bike racing, you get to see all these amazing facial expressions. You get to see the true personality of who the person is. When someone's really in the pain cave, when they're really in the box, what do they look like? Do they look like they're seeing ghosts? Do they look like they're fighting a tiger? Do they look like a matrix robot? Expressionless and cold? You, you see all of these expressions in good photography capturing the pro peloton. It's a cool game to play to go and watch that, right? We're all familiar with this game. Maybe we just thought of it in different terms, but this is how I see it. And I really find it fascinating. It's illuminating to see what the person's really made of. And for me, it's also illuminating to see when some racers look like they are being almost hit or beaten. That tells me something very interesting about how the, about the relationship with the sport and about the relationship with pain and suffering. I'm not sure what it tells me, but there's probably a story there to be told, is what I would say. So that's a cool part. And when we get to the last two minutes of the five minute interval, you're definitely in that place if you're doing it right, if you're going deep enough. So when we get, when the clock turns to minute three, then we're really starting to feel probably at a 10, our, our sensations coming up from our body. Everything's been turned up to a 10 at that point. And you're just hanging on and watching the minutes tick the seconds that is, and just trying to keep, I would say your pace at par. You're trying your, all your effort, nearly all your effort, I'll say is focused on keeping your pace at that same level. You've had it for the first three minutes. And that requ commands requires a lot of attention. It commands a lot of input from your mind, a lot of concentration. And what's interesting is we'll have these conflicting voices that'll start to happen and you'll have this gnawing sensation to just let off the gas a little bit. We'll have this drive, this pull. It's maybe not, maybe it's a conscious voice for some people. For me, it's not. It's, it's just, a, it's like an instinct to just let up a little bit. And that's a powerful, powerful tension there between the drive to keep the power where you want it and the drive to let off the gas and just relax a little bit. Even the tiniest bit of relaxation can make a big difference in the pain. And there is a side of you that will tell you to do that the whole time and you have to fight it. Now, here's a little side note as a coach. When you watch someone do a true five-minute interval, like a really deep one, you could see this struggle in the power, assuming that you look at the power from a granular enough perspective. And this is why I hate smoothing. Anytime I'm looking at a graph, I always take the smoothing completely out so I can see the actual freaking raw data. Smoothing is like useless. Uh, and, and so we, I want to see the data points because I want to see how jagged they are. When someone's like, if they average 320, but they're constantly dipping into the high 200s and then up to the three, barely up to 320. And then occasionally 330, 340, and they're just seesawing back and forth violently. That's a sign of a real struggle inside them to keep that pace. Now, maybe that struggle is physiological. Maybe their aerobic system isn't trained well enough to handle that load, but their glycolytic system is kind of half firing the whole time. 
maybe it's uh, an emotional or mental struggle to deal with the effort, right? I mean, to do an effort this deep, you have to have a very clear dream goal or objective. And for a man or woman with a why, there's almost always a how. So if you are three weeks out from national championships and you think you're going to win the time trial, then doing deep five-minute efforts, if you believe that's what will get you the win, then suddenly doing those efforts becomes not that much of a challenge. If you're a motivated athlete, you really are all in, right? But if it's the wrong time of year to be doing these efforts, or if you aren't really present in the workout and you're thinking about the fight you had still and wrestling with that, and you're not quite all in on the portal of the pain cave, or if you're, you don't believe you can win, you're, you're training really hard, but you know you're going to get 30th and that's not motivating to you. Then you see this seesaw happening possibly, right? Whereas when someone gets really fit and they have real clear intent and real focus, then we tend to get a very unwavering line. So there's, you can interpret data in lots of ways. When we get to minute four, things get really interesting. And if you've never done a really, really proper five minute interval with 59 seconds to go, this cool thing happens. Uh, We all get to experience firsthand how time is relative because each second will take about a minute. (laughs) I mean, to speak in slight hyperbole, but time does stretch out. When you're staring at the clock and you have been already digging and digging and digging and trying so hard to keep yourself above waterline on this effort for, for what seems like a very, very long time. Four minutes is a really long time to hold a truly maximal effort. By the time you get to the last minute, you are just gasping for air, breathing out of every orifice. And there should be a point in the last minute with about a minute to go. If you do a proper five minute interval, you should be kind of wondering, I'm either going to barely hold this pace until five minutes or I'm going to pass out. I'm not sure which. And then you're in the right ballpark. That's the kind of intensity we're looking for. So when an, when a rider's not very experienced at these types of efforts, I have found that they, they can't really go to this level and it takes some training. It takes some practice. It takes a few trial runs. So if you're not used to this type of effort and you want to try it, doesn't it sound like fun? I painted such a good picture. Um, expect to go out and blow up a few times. Expect to not make it to five minutes. That's not failure. That's you learning. Expect to do a few of them and then realize you underpaced them. That's also not failure. It wasn't a wasted interval. It's you learning. As a society, we all place way too much pressure on ourselves to learn new things perfectly like the first time we do them. That's ridiculous. But everyone does it from what I've seen. We have to give ourselves a break once in a while. When you're learning something new, just go learn it. Stop judging yourself. Mr. Mrs. Judgy Face. So... Uh, I was talking to myself when I said that too. Wow. It's October. So many Halloween decorations everywhere. We are off the back in the Halloween neighborhood contest. Okay. So that's our description. You cross the line of your five minute effort. I said that funny, but actually that illustrates a point. Something a bit obtuse about intervals of durations. When you're racing in a bike race, you're racing towards a finish line. If you're doing a 20 K TT, you know where the finish is coming because you started there and then you went out for 10K and did a turnaround at a cone usually, typically. And you know where the line is coming. So you're racing to a known point. 
But what's a bit funny about intervals, like a five minute interval, is you're racing for time. Meaning, in a bike race, the faster you go, the shorter the time you're suffering, right? So it's kind of like positive reinforcement. But you can go extra hard in a five minute interval and it still takes five minutes. <laughs> so consider that for a moment. It's a little bit of a different way to think about how you're motivated to complete an effort. You know, if you're racing to the top of a hill, the faster you go, the sooner it's over. But also there's something very natural, very primal, you know, for us to try to get to a known point quickly. I think that comes probably back to bipedal running nature instinct and that being transferred over to the bike to some degree. But never in nature did a lion chase you and say, well, I'm going to race you for five minutes. And if you make it to five minutes before I do, you live like that doesn't exist way too obtuse of a concept. So take that for what it's worth. A few technical bits about doing five minute intervals. One, if you're going to do them outdoors, ideally you got to pick a road that has little to no traffic, good pavement, a nice big fat bike lane, no traffic lights, no turns, no undulations. Ideally we want a constant grade, either flat or maybe slightly uphill not a steep climb, preferably, although I should specify, it depends a bit on what you're trying to accomplish. If you want to work on a more torque intensive five minute effort, then yeah, you would pick a steep climb. So anyway, whatever the design of the interval is, but generally speaking, we want a constant grade because the point is to apply constant pressure. Now, if you live in a very urban or suburban area, if you live in a city, uh, finding five minutes of road, to do these types of efforts on can be quite challenging or maybe impossible. If you're in a city, you've got probably a park, maybe you could do it, or I don't recommend a bike path. Um, nobody likes a path leap going 50 K an hour on a bike path, unless it's like the world's widest bike path and everybody has designated lanes and people actually pay attention to those designations, which I've yet to see even in lanes with the said designations the chance of you hitting someone or at least freaking somebody out is it's really high. It's not worth it. Um, if that's, if you don't have a good park to do them in where it's safe, then I'd say indoor might be your gig. And even when it's warm, if you want to get a good constructive workout in, you can warm up on the trainer, do your efforts and then go outside and add volume afterwards. That's a combo solution. If you live in an area where riding is okay or easier riding is fine, but you don't have a good spot five minute uninterrupted road. Five minutes of uninterrupted road is actually quite quite a ways, especially if you're in flat terrain. I mean, that's probably close to 4K for most people. And we tend to think like, oh yeah, that road's five minutes long. And then you go in about two minutes in, you're going, oops, not even close. We tend to think of our ride durations at the speed that we mostly ride those roads on or at, I should say. So that's like 25 or 30 K an hour, typically not, you know, twice that or 45 K an hour for a lot of people we will say. So that's one consideration. Another is that you can use a little bit of a hack, which um, some people think is cheating, but I think is possibly just good motivation. And that is when you set up your head unit, make sure that your lap average power is displayed on your screen that is displayed during your intervals, whatever screen that is, or maybe in a Garmin, you probably have to 
program the lap average on a second or third screen and then flick over to it while you're doing the interval because that's how Garmin works because they're not quite on the same page. Also, Garmin, we don't actually do laps. We do intervals. <laughs> um, we do laps on the track, but yeah, GPS don't work for that. So anyway, I don't know why you guys call it a lap. Uh, in my opinion, improper terminology, Pepe Vine. Also, zero offset and calibration are not the same thing, people, but Garmin um, managed to confound the vocabulary on that one too, the vernacular. So at any rate, stepping off the soapbox, when you set up your head unit for this five-minute effort, let's say that your objective is to do four five-minute efforts and you want to have the same power or the highest average power for all four efforts uh, as possible. And that would be a pretty common workout objective. You know, again, if we're training for our 20 or 30 KTT, this would be a pretty solid workout in your back pocket. And so, okay, cool. That's our, that's our gig. We're going to do that. And what you can do is set up that screen. So you see your average live during the effort. And if you're, if the previous week you did this workout and you averaged 320 watts, just to pick our example again, and you know that in the third effort of your current workout, you are three minutes in and you've got 323 as your average, that's a powerful motivator because you can sit there and stare at that power number, of course, carefully being aware of all the traffic and other things around you so you don't run into anything. You can, you can watch, observe that power average, and that can drive you to stay that three watts ahead, that 333 watts, 23. Sorry, I forgot my numbers now. Whatever I was saying, three watts ahead. I mean, even though technically speaking, three watts is within the range of error of any modern power meter, like it's, you should just take it. It's a little victory. If you finish that effort and it's the best ever third effort you've done in this five minute series, then you're making progress, right? Or you're at least tying yourself and that's good. And keep in mind to that point, you know, it's so easy with power meters and with power curves now to go chasing PRs all the time, but that's not really how training works. Training isn't about setting PRs all the time. Training is about training consistently day in and day out so that you have repeatable high level efforts. And likewise, when you get to a race, we're not asking for the miracle of the angels for you to have suddenly make 350 watts on your race day for 20K when you've been barely doing that in training, that's not how training ought to work. If you're doing it that way, you've got the wrong expectations for your race day. We want you to go to your target race and have an average day for you and still be able to win. That's the objective of training, not to have this perfect scenario where everything comes together at the magic moment and you set four PRs and smash everybody on the race day, but you had to do things you've never done before to get there. So that's a bit of somewhat related, but also somewhat random advice. Okay. So one more point I want to make about five minute intervals. We use the five minute interval in a testing protocol that we've created for the team EF coaching platform. And we use it in our, our EF ecosystem. I like that word ecosystem. I'm going to use it because it makes me sound green and, and with it. Uh, we use it to help test our riders or assess our riders. And my colleague, Peter Skep, 
came up with this test. He's a guy who's at least twice as smart as I am. He's Dutch. And he and I raced together on the track, actually, for a number of years. He uh, usually beat me. He has three medals from the World Points Race Championships, one of each color, a gold, a silver, and a bronze. I think he has some other medals from Team Pursuit as well. He was part of the Dutch team for, I don't know, probably as long as I was for the American team, or probably longer. And we've raced various world championships together and six days and World Cups and all kinds of stuff. And now he works for the EF team. He works for the professional team and um, he coaches a lot of the riders and runs the camps and does the aero testing and all that business. And he came up with this testing protocol and it's called the DTP testing protocol or dynamic threshold power. And it's a little different than a standard modern day power profiling test, which I believe was brought about by either Andy Coggin or um, Hunter Allen or both. I'm not sure who to credit with the exact origin of that, but I'm being stalked by an electric car here. Thank you. You may go about your business. Have a nice night. But I'm sure you're all familiar with that protocol. It's something like, uh, you know, standard warm up, a five minute tempo, a couple sprints. I think they're 15 seconds each. And then a five minute maximal effort, a 20 minute maximal effort, and a one minute, a couple one minutes at the end. And the concept there is pretty simple. You're just trying to touch all the, the energy systems, right? Uh, you're trying to touch the anaerobic alactic system, the then the VO2 system, uh, or maximal oxygen uptake system, power maximal maximal oxygen uptake, and then the aerobic system, and then finish it off with the glycolytic. And they pick those orders for specific reasons. Um, one of the criticisms of that test is, a, is that the 20-minute duration is too short, and that when you take 95% of it, some athletes who are really glycolytic can skew the result by punching it really hard and then their zones are too high and then they're training too hard all the time. And then they're always smashed, which for a glycolytic athlete is double trouble because, you know, most glycolytic athletes in aerobic zones are working way harder than, uh, or burning a lot more carbs, I'll say more accurately than riders who are more slow twitch oriented or aerobically based. So you can really smoke yourself that way in theory. So Peter looked at things from a different lens. He really wanted to get into a testing protocol that was a little more realistic and real world in terms of giving us an assessment of a rider that is fatigued. So yeah, when you do, you know, the standard power protocol, uh, testing protocol, you, you, you can do it all in one day, but you can also space it out over multiple days. And there aren't that many races where you're going to go do a 20 minute rip and effort and have it be an actual race performance. I mean, yeah, there's a few 20 K time trials here and there, short time trials, or maybe an occasional short hill climb, but the vast majority of the time, whether you're talking about the end of a crit, the end of a road race, uh, a longer time trial, a circuit race, a cross race, all these races, you know, first of all, the efforts are very stochastic, but secondly, when the business end of things happen, you've already got a lot of load in the system. So Peter's test protocol is fundamentally based around the glycolytic energy system, but it's a fatigued state. So the, the power, the protocol goes like this. You'd warm up, you do a couple 10 second sprints, do those while you're fresh. That's a neuromuscular, that's to get the idea of your neuromuscular power. And then you would do a five minute maximal effort, follow that with some tempo. 
there, we have two different protocols. The shorter one is a 20 minute tempo. The longer one is three by 15 minute tempos. And then you follow that tempo session with another five minute maximal effort. And the, what we do is look at the rate of decay or fatigue between the first and second five minute efforts. And then we use that, spit that into a formula. And then that determines your DTP or dynamic threshold power. And so when you think about the test, you realize that it's really more of an indicator of how a rider will produce power after a fair amount of load. That's the concept. As opposed to a 20 minute effort that's been done after a five minute tempo and a couple sprints where ostensibly the rider's gonna be a little fresher and their zones might be a bit inflated as a result of that fresher assessment profile ride. So if you're a rider who has never done a five minute interval properly, I've just given you all kinds of juicy things to think about. If you're a rider who is in our team EF coaching program, and you've already done your DTP test, then you've got some more information on how to do five-minute intervals and apply that to your next DTP test. If you're just entering our ecosystem and you hear this podcast, then now you've got some ideas on how to execute your five-minute intervals for your DTP test. The trick for us as coaches is to tease out how hard the athlete went. Because once the athlete knows that the rate of decay will determine their zones, they might be inclined to hold back a little bit in the first five-minute effort and then match it precisely in their second one. And I can tell you right now that if there's no decay between the first and second effort, then we know pretty much concretely you didn't go fast enough. Because even the World Tour riders will have some rate of decay between the first and second five-minute efforts, assuming they do that and they do their tempo at the correct correctly prescribed intensity. So that's the, the trick for us is to tease out how hard you went. And we can we have ways we can figure that out. But um, yeah, you know, ultimately, if you do these efforts, you can go out and do five minute efforts at threshold all day long, and they're not going to be nothing, but they're not going to get you the same impact as this maximal effort. That's where the real gold is, is training uh, intensively, like we talked about with the staircase analogy. You're training the rise, not the run. If you want to train the run or the extensive aspect of your ability to make aerobic power, then you're talking about something more like an eight-minute effort and adding eight-minute efforts onto your workout each week. So three by eight, four by eight, five by eight. At least that would be a standard, well, Siler protocol. That's what he recommends. I don't think that's a bad idea at all. That guy's pretty smart. So there you go. There's a lot of words about efforts and a little bit about philosophy. Managed to squeak some in there. Next week, I've got two podcasts I'm recording with guests that I'm not going to tell you about because you might pee in your pants and we don't want that to happen. So stay tuned. Thank you for listening as always to Cycling in Alignment. I'm so grateful for everyone's attendance and input as needed. As always, Please feel free to leave me some comments or questions on the gram on the Cycling in Alignment with Colby Pierce Instagram page. You can drop in your, your words and I'll do my best to get back to them. I'm not the world's most perfect Instagram wizard with the direct messages, 
but I do my best to keep up with them. I've got messages coming at me from arguably a few too many platforms right now. So uh, as always, the rotating carousel of trying to keep my head on straight. In any case, thank you for listening. And we'll talk to you next time. Attention, Space Monkeys, public service announcement. Really, technically, it's a disclaimer. You already know this, but I'm going to remind you that I'm not a lawyer and I'm not a doctor. So don't take anything on this podcast to constitute lawyerly or doctorly advice. I don't play either of those characters on the internet, which again is self-evident. Gratitude.